With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports. I'm James Robinson, the host of the channel. Uh, today, we'll be talking to uh, Paul Beston about his book, The Boxing Kings, um, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring. Um, so a few words about uh, Paul, who thank you for coming on to the program. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, so Paul Beston is a managing editor of City Journal, um, and his writing has also appeared in City Journal, The Wall Street Journal, uh, Pop Matters, The American Spectator, The American Conservative, Real Claire Sports, The Millions, The Christian Science Monitor, and others, including the anthology De Capo Best Music Writing 2003. Uh, he also holds a MA in English from Fordham University. He has published boxing essays for The Sweet Signs, as well as uh, the publications above. Um, so in addition to that introduction, why don't you um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, your academic path and uh, where you're from, etc. Sure. Uh, well, I, I'm uh, currently, I'll start from the present and work backwards, I guess, you know, I'm a managing editor with City Journal, as you mentioned, which is here in uh, New York City. Uh, I've been working in New York City one way or another for uh, my whole uh, working life. I don't live here anymore. I live uh, north of the city in Beacon, New York. Um, my uh, parents are originally New Yorkers, but I grew up in the Midwest, in the Chicago area, before coming back east. Uh, but it was when I was growing up that I got interested in uh, the topic that uh, is, uh, you know, the subject of my book, boxing. So my interest in boxing goes back many, many years. Uh, but, you know, in terms of academic path, I was an English major, classic uh, sort of English major who couldn't do math very well uh, in college. And I did... Uh, I did pursue graduate studies for some time at Fordham University, got a master's degree, um, and um, did a little bit of work on PhD, but then uh, opted to uh, opted to take a different path. And, uh, you know, here I am at uh, 2017, still with the City Journal. I've been here at City Journal for 10 years and uh, was working on the Boxing Kings over the last four years or so and uh, just published this past September. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, how did you come to write The Boxing Kings? Um, uh, you had mentioned that you've been at City Journal, so obviously you're a writer. Um, but how did you start on the project? Uh, uh, the subtitle is When American, Bo- uh, when American Heavyweights Rolled the Ring. Um, so, yeah, 
How'd you get on that? Well, I've been writing and publishing articles for about 15 years or so, and I, just on a variety of things. I'm, I'm definitely a generalist. You know, I don't have a, a, a specialty area. Uh, if I have a broad specialty area, it would just be America and Americana, American culture, American history. Those are things that, that interest me the most. And one thing I noticed as I started writing pieces and essays and book reviews was that boxing uh, just kind of kept popping up because it's an old very old passion and love of mine dating back to uh, boyhood. And I found that whenever I was kind of, you know, stuck on ideas or whatever, it always seemed as if boxing was a very fertile field for me to go back to, to write something on, whether it was a new book out on one of the old champions or just some other topic um, regarding the sport that I, that I could tackle. And um, so about five, five and a half years ago or so, I, I was realizing that I'd done quite a bit of writing about these guys, these heavyweight champions in particular, uh, who are in my book, who I call the Boxing Kings, these the, the heavyweights. And um, I thought, you know, um, maybe I should put all this together in, in a book. And I also began to realize that there hadn't really been a book that has done this, that puts all of them from the late 19th century, starting with John L. Sullivan, who's really the first key guy, all the way through the 20th, the whole 20th century, and ending pretty much at the doorstep of the 21st century with the end of uh, Mike Tyson and Vander Holyfield's careers, because the other, as you said there with the subtitle, the key hook here is the American angle, because obviously there's still a heavyweight championship of the world that's still going on, but it has left the United States, and it has been essentially... Uh, an international property now for a decade and a half or more. And uh, what I realized once I started putting the book together was that that's a pretty new development, essentially, through the whole 20th century, uh, although it was called the heavyweight championship of the world. It was really an American thing. There were only a couple of international champions. So I was struck by that, and I was struck by the opportunity it provided to not only tell the story of these champions, but um, you know, do a little bit of history with them because – one of the things that made the title so alluring to me, I realized that reading about it as a kid was what larger than life figures these guys were and the way that they, the most significant ones, uh, always seemed to connect with their eras in some way. They either uh, reflected their eras or sometimes even influenced them in some ways. And so I saw the opportunity to tell the kind of a parallel story, both of, of the title itself, but also of, of the growth of sports in America and of, you know, some social history in, in, in the country as well during the 20th century that is reflected through these guys' careers. Okay. Um, so let's go into the meat of the book. Uh, how did boxing evolve? Why, I mean, why was it so dominant in American culture? And why did the Well, it evolves. Uh, it comes from from Great Britain. I mean, the the roots of boxing, you know, go go back to antiquity, really, with, with Greece and Rome. But then it then it essentially died out for a long time, at least as best we can tell from a historical standpoint, chronicling it. And it was really Great Britain in around the 18th century that begins to to resuscitate the sport. And uh, and you know, obviously, America is a British colony, and the, the, this uh, this habit comes our way as well. And uh, just as it's starting to kind of lose momentum in Victorian England, it really starts to catch on uh, more in the United States, starting around the middle 
of the, the 19th, even a little bit earlier in the 19th century, it just had these sporadic bursts of events that caught people's interest. But um, it was an illegal sport. It was always illegal for the 19th century. So it was uh, its appeal was limited for, for obvious reasons. But at the same time, it was capturing working class enthusiasm with, with a, in, in real great intensity, especially as uh, the immigration to the country began to increase in the late 19th century, especially with the arrival of the Irish uh, diaspora and in the, from around 1860s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, it's at that period that um, John L. Sullivan, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who was the son of Irish immigrants, was born in 1858 in Boston. Uh, so he's a first-generation American of Irish descent. He really rises to the top and becomes you know, the heavyweight champion of the world. But before him, they had been champions, but they hadn't attained the kind of fame and influence and riches that he did. And he really took the title into a whole uncharted territory. He made this uh, a commercial kind of institution, a real enterprise that you could actually get rich doing. Before that, most boxers were, you know, they're kind of dying in the gutter kind of thing. They weren't making great money. And uh, um, Sullivan was making, you know, Sullivan was, was becoming a rich man as the heavyweight champion. So he, he's a key figure, not only in, in the heavyweight title, but really the rise of American sports. Um, so, uh, you know, how did the, why did the title stay here so long? I think it's, it, it's a very much a reflection of, uh, of that immigration. Uh, There's so many groups coming here and it's just a lot of it is, is tied to the nature of our society of this, this, uh, you know, an ascendant culture where people are coming here and scrapping and trying to rise. And boxing was just a, a really uh, key vehicle for that uh, in, in the late 19th century and all in the first half of the 20th century it started to reflect the immigration patterns so the Irish with Sullivan and for a generation after that are, are, are great uh, uh, greatly representative in boxing as champions but it's often forgotten today is in the early 20th century Jewish fighters were very prominent uh, when there was a lot of you know great uh, Jewish community and the Lower East Side and great fighters coming out of New York uh, from poor uh, poor homes you know and then uh, later on the, the, the big wave of Italian immigrants came and that, that gave us a very famous heavyweight champion later in the century, Rocky Marciano. So you can really kind of trace these immigrant groups moving through America and, and boxing is a, is a very interesting mirror of, of watching that unfold. And I think that it was tough for other countries to compete with that because we, we were welcoming so many different groups here and uh, there was such a, a culture of aspiration in America that boxing, uh, I think, uh, uh, played into. Okay. Um, so thinking about some of those names, you named John L. Sullivan um, and Rocky Marciano. Um, uh, thinking about some of the other ones like Jack Johnson or Jack Dempsey or Joe Lewis. Uh, what is what is each of these champs? Um, and you're the one of the themes of the book is that it's a sort of crowning of individuals who pass on the crown. So it's a, a many short biographies. So what does each of these champs and big names um, say about each of the eras? Well, they're, uh, they're, 
very evocative of their times. I mean, uh, I mentioned Sullivan. I mean, he comes in the Gilded Age uh, as a time of growing American wealth, but uh, it's also a real transitional point where where uh, uh, he's really kind of the first working class celebrity. I mean, America would still had, uh, you know, hadn't really had that kind of experience yet, and he's kind of a precursor to great athletes and movie stars of what we're going to see in the 20th century, and um, and again representing that ethnic uh, ethnic group of pride that that he did. Um, when you get to some of the black champions such as Jack Johnson, you're in a, a this is a as a whole different story there because you're you know you're jack johnson's career he was champion from 1908 to 1915 uh he's the first uh black man to hold the title and so he's his whole career is kind of a mirror uh held up to american society uh of what the racial climate was and it wasn't a very happy picture um he uh, he won the title by beating uh, a white fighter and uh, Jack London, no less a, a great novelist such as Jack London, writes from ringside the white race uh, must be rescued and we, we need a white champion to come out of retirement and beat this guy. We can't have uh, a black man holding this title. And that reflected two things. One, it obviously reflected the racism of the times, but secondly, it also reflected how Already by 1908, the heavyweight title was seen by people as this important thing that, that had to be protected. You know, this was American. Somehow it belonged to America, and we can't let uh, can't let it fall into the wrong hands. So that those kinds of feelings were already there as early as 1908. And so Johnson, uh, somebody like Jack Johnson, really, as I said, was reflecting was really a, a lightning rod for what was happening in the country then, which is I mean, it's a terrible time, really, uh, racially, a lot of reversal of progress that had happened uh, in the late 19th century with Reconstruction and then, uh, terrible uh, lynchings going on in the South. And, uh, you know, he's the kind of guy who had death threats against him uh, pretty much every fight. Um, and then he was also breaking all kinds of social taboos, such as his relationships with white women. So he was just a figure of unbelievable contention uh, in the early 20th century. And, and he was handling it with an incredible amount of audacity and courage. Um, and so Johnson is very significant in that regard. But his career is so notorious, at least by the way whites look at it, that it, it cost blacks, at least in the heavyweight division, because uh, once he had passed from the scene, uh, there was kind of an unspoken agreement. You know, never, never again. We're not going to let that happen again. So it took uh, a generation before another uh, black man got a chance at the title in the 30s, and that was Joe Lewis. So, um, and Joe Lewis, uh, in terms of representing the era, he's again uh, just a, a he's a great figure of, of black pride at that time. He's very different than Jack Johnson. He's not uh, as flamboyant. He's not flamboyant at all, actually. He's quite stoic, soft-spoken, um, doesn't uh, involve himself with white women, at least uh, not not publicly. Uh, uh, he is uh, 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 gracious and dignified, and he does not ruffle the feathers in the way that Jack Johnson did. And so he is able to fight for the title and win. He's pretty much unbeatable at his peak. Uh, so his his merits as a fighter are you know, nobody can deny them. Um, the other thing that happens with Joe Lewis is his career starts to intersect with these other big, big events that uh, that along with his personal dignity uh, as a person and as a champion start to really work subtle social changes in people's attitudes for the good. And I think one of those really key moments is when he is matched up against German fighter named Max Schmeling, who was at the time uh, kind of the favorite of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party in Germany. This is 1938. 
people have been debating ever since then, uh, you know, how closely and how willingly this fighter, Max Schmeling, was tied to the Nazis. Was he going along willingly or was he being kind of adopted against his against his wishes? Whatever your views on that, he lands in America in 1938 for this fight with uh, Joe Lewis, seen by most Americans as Hitler's fighter and, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly. And so it's a fight that takes on an incredible amount of uh, political and social ramifications, uh, the Nazis with all of their uh, master race talk. So uh, certainly for blacks, uh, um, seeing Joe Lewis win is, is of huge importance, but also for American Jews uh, rooting for Joe Lewis with, with great uh, passion to see him win this fight and somehow um, – you know, stick it to Hitler, at least in the boxing ring, because, uh, you know, we're right at the doorstep of World War II here. The war was going to start barely a year later. June 1938 is when they meet. And uh, Lewis just destroys Schmeling, knocks him out in two minutes of the first round. So, But what happened in the fight is that, uh, according to the newspaper, you know, what, what uh, Chronicle the fight shows is that uh, millions of Americans rallied to Lewis's side who were neither black nor Jewish. They were just, you know, a lot of white Americans came to see Lewis as uh, an American like them and uh, uh, decided that they wanted to see the American win over the German and Hitler's fighter. And I think that's an important, you know, it's a subtle kind of thing. Not that every white person was rooting for Lewis. That certainly wasn't the case, but certainly more were rooting for him uh, than might have been expected. Um, and that's a key moment for him in his career. And uh, a few years later, when the country goes into war and Lewis suits up, uh, in the army, he does not see combat action, but he's a kind of a morale officer and, and fights exhibitions and entertains troops and visits troops and flies all around the world visiting um, GIs at army bases. Um, again, another crucial uh, sort of bridge building uh, to to white America. By the end of Lewis's career, uh, he is uh, he's got people at ringside, white white fans at ringside, rooting for him against white opponents. And I think that's a, again, that shouldn't be remarkable to us. It's certainly not remarkable now. But when you think about Jack Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, that would have been unthinkable in Jack Johnson's time. And that had only been 30, 35 years earlier. So it's a, it's a big change. Um, and lastly, for just a, on Lewis, um, uh, I think it's often overlooked today that um, he paved the way for Jackie Robinson. Uh, he was uh, the heavyweight champion 10 years before Jackie Robinson got into baseball. And in fact, uh, Robinson is quoted as saying, I don't, you know, that he wasn't sure if that day would have ever come, uh, if not for Joe Lewis. So I think he's a, he's a huge figure in the you know, history of sports in the country. And I think uh, maybe sometimes a little bit overlooked by now, um, due to, you know, possibly boxing's fading a little bit, uh, from prominence. Uh, but there's a bunch of other guys. I don't know how much, uh, if you want me to go through them all, but, uh, you know, obviously Muhammad Ali is. Yeah. Yeah, let's hear about them. I mean, I'm, I think that's one of the strengths of the book is that even the, the bigger figures um, that uh, are sort of connected by, by uh, I guess, flashes in the pan. Well, Dempsey, uh, in terms of his era, I think his significance is that he is really um, uh, the bridge to modern kind of modern commercial era of sports that we know today um, because when his, he's the champion for most of the roaring 20s, which means he is a sports contemporary of Babe Ruth. And um, Babe Ruth, you know, nearly 100 years later, 
his image, his fame, his reputation is seems to me hardly diminished at all. I mean, he's uh, little kids probably still know that name. His presence is very uh, clear at Yankee Stadium. Uh, his fame uh, remains. And uh, Jack Dempsey, though, I think is probably his fame has probably faded quite quite a lot. And um, that's uh, striking again about maybe a, a, there's another story there about about how boxing has lost prominence because during the 20s. Uh, Dempsey uh, was every bit as famous uh, and, and celebrated as Babe Ruth and certainly far richer. Um, he made uh, uh, money that no other athlete of the 20s could even approach. Um, I calculated that in his richest fight, which was in 1926, uh, when he made $717,000, uh, which doesn't sound like much today, it was a whole lot in 1926, is more, almost more than Ruth made in his whole career. Uh, season salaries all added up together. The most Ruth ever made in a season was $80,000, and he only made that for, you know, three or four seasons. So um, Dempsey was just operating on a whole different financial plane uh, as heavyweight champion. And uh, <clears throat> he was also the guy who brought in these immense crowds, uh, uh, promoters, custom built stadiums because of the crowds that wanted to see him. He fought before crowds of over a hundred thousand people. Uh, th that kind of size is only seen today. And you know, a couple of those huge college football stadiums like Michigan and a few others. Um, this is for, for, for a boxing match. You know, now today's most of today's big boxing matches are in Las Vegas and, um, they may seem like a big deal, but there's probably only about 10,000 people inside of that hall. You know, I mean, we're all paying money on pay-per-view and all the rest of the money is certainly ringing up. But in terms of bodies, um, there's just nothing quite like looking at an old picture and seeing the, the immensity of the crowds that used to come out. Uh, and see him. So he's, um, he, you know, the 20s brought in radio and they brought in this, this sort of a, more and more newspapers had their own sports sections. And it's just it, by the end of that era, you really start to recognize kind of the sports landscape that has taken shape that we're, that we're more accustomed to today. So I think that's really Dempsey's, uh, Dempsey's enduring influence because he was such a gate attraction. He attracted the people in such huge numbers. <laughs> Um, let's see, we could, uh, I mean, there's, yeah. And after, um, yeah. skipping back ahead after Joe Lewis's Rocky Marciano, like you had mentioned before. Right. Right. Yeah. Marciano was champion. You know, he's, he's a major champion, but he was champion not for as long as some of these other guys only, only about three, three and a half years. Uh, he came to boxing kind of late. He wanted to be a baseball player. He wanted to play baseball and he was a pretty good baseball player but he wasn't good enough to make uh, the Cubs he tried to try it out for the Cubs um, he's actually a pretty good football player in high school too so he, he really wanted he saw sports as his way out he was the son of uh, pretty um, you know poor Italian uh, immigrant parents his father worked in a shoe factory uh, and his son just he just was haunted by that life that his father led and desperately wanted to escape from it and uh, Boxing was the final final uh, shot there in terms of sports. So he got to the game late. He was uh, he had physical limitations. He was quite short, five foot ten, very short for heavyweight, very short arms. So he had to fight inside. He had to get close to his opponent. He had to be willing to be hit, and he had to just work himself. Uh, I would say he there's no heavyweight who ever worked harder than this guy. His training camps are legendary. His stamina and endurance are legendary. I watched his YouTube fights, and there are these rounds where he has a guy pinned up against the ropes 
and he is throwing punches literally nonstop. I'm waiting for him to stop, and he just doesn't. I don't know where he gets the oxygen from, but he was um, profoundly well conditioned and just uh, he he did it. He he achieved what he achieved through through absolute determination, just iron iron will. And he's famous today for a couple of things. I mean, one is this number, this zero, this forty nine and zero record, forty nine wins and no losses, and. Um, He's the only heavyweight champion who never lost um, and so has a funny way of coming up again uh, in sports sometimes. We, we just last summer when uh, Floyd Mayweather was fighting that big fight against uh, – well, some people thought it was a big fight and other people thought it was a farce. But anyway, a lot of people, a lot of people paid for it so, against Conor McGregor. And Mayweather was 49-0. and 0. He was uh, looking to win his 50th. And so people were like, – Rocky Marciano's name was back in the news. And it does pop up from time to time. But he's also just a um, – he really fit in with his era of the early 50s, the beginning of the Eisenhower years. He was very modest. He was very humble, uh, hardworking, close to his family, close to his community. Uh, you know, it's very, very fitting uh, of the times. And I've been in Italian restaurants even now and, and, uh, and seen his picture. So, um, it, you know, his, his presence does remain. Yeah. There's a, where I'm from, uh, Philadelphia, there's a statue of him in South Philly. Mm. I that's Rocky Marciano. Yeah, might be. I mean, he was from Boston, but then maybe there's a, uh, I mean, I know there's a, a statue of Joe Frazier in Philly, but that's fairly recent, but that's another guy. He's not... Um, uh, I don't know. Did you want to? Uh, yeah, let's let's about, move to the next, the big one. Uh, the big one. Well, well, one the of the big ones uh, in uh, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. I mean, that's like you know, I can almost do a separate uh, podcast, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I mean, he's he's one of these guys. Uh, uh, he and and uh, and Mike Tyson behind him. Uh, when I've given talks on the books, I, I, on the book, I always tell the audience to say, uh, "Now these last two guys, I know that you know. I know you know these last two guys, and usually they do." Um, and uh, when I think of Muhammad Ali, I think backwards again. Uh, sometimes it's easier to start and work backwards. I think of his death uh, last summer, and I think of the incredible media uh, extravaganza that that was. Uh, it was, I don't know if you, you remember, but it was about a week of coverage on uh, cable news and, and uh, you know, the internet and everything. And uh, I also remember, because I, I knew that he was passing, that he had been sick. And so I knew that I was going to write something about him. And I remember uh, going to sleep that night, looking at my phone, you know, seeing if it, if it had happened yet. And I woke up in the morning, and he had uh, he had passed away. And the headline of the New York Times was just remarkable. It was um, Muhammad Ali, Titan of Boxing, End of Twentieth Century, dies at seventy four. And I thought, well, that's what a second clause, you know? I mean, um, and that was what he uh, he would have loved that because that is what he. Uh, always said, you know, I'm I'm the athlete who gets written about on the front page. All these other suckers get written about on the sports pages. I get written about on the front pages, and you know it was true. Um, you know, it's it's impossible to summarize him, but I I could could really just pick two giant legacies of his. And the first is obviously he brought um, a level of showmanship and self-promotion that I mean, there's just sports had never seen anything like this guy, and I I would say has never really seen anything since but so much of you can see through the promotional activities of athletes today and and, and showing off and and showboating and and just trash talking and 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 promotion 
he and he backed it up. Of course, he backed it up. Um, but he um, he also had so much charm. I mean, he had he brought. I, I say in the book that uh, he brought something not normally associated with prize fighting, which is joy. <laughs> I mean, he made people laugh. You know, and that was that was remarkable. And then, of course, this, the second thing, of course, is. Uh, you know the political and social elements. Uh, no athlete. I mean, sports have been entangled in in politics before. We were talking about Jack Johnson. We were talking about Joe Lewis. I mean, the politics in the world outside do come into sports more often than than we would like to admit, and, and more often than some of us uh, enjoy. But um, it never really been blended and embedded in the way that Muhammad Ali, the whole arc of his career, really did, both through his. Um, First, of joining the Nation of Islam and the, the, the racial issues uh, that he uh, that he addressed, um, and then of course his uh, his uh, refusal to serve in the armed forces uh, in 1967 when he was called for service. So those are two, uh, you know, and again, this, these are these are things like most big American lives. These are these are things you can. There's plenty to argue about. I mean, there's lots of different opinions about it. Um, Ali's arc of of uh, his career is fascinating because these were hugely contentious things in the 60s and he would eventually be much more celebrated than than criticized for those things and he he really won uh, millions of people over through um both through changes in the culture and through his own through his own uh, force of personality and and uh, and sincerity so um you know it's a giant legacy i don't even know how to wrap it all up except to say this fall with the nfl uh, national anthem uh, protests. Uh, you know, if there's a, if there's a shadow of one person that hangs over all of that, it, it's Muhammad Ali. I think I just read this morning that uh, Colin Kaepernick won the Muhammad Ali Award from Sports Illustrated. So um, that's how contemporary he is. He's pretty much he's very much uh, uh, embedded in the kind of sports world that uh, that people uh, watch today for for better or for worse, depending on how you see these things. Yeah. Um, so the the last big figure um, who I remember quite well, and I don't think anybody's really come close since. And you kind of wrap it up in the book with Mike Tyson. Um, uh, and he's, he serves as sort of the bookend of the American century of, of domination. Absolutely. Um, I would say nobody, uh, nobody, attracted people to the boxing ring to watch fights in quite the same electric electric kind of way um, as Mike Tyson did uh, since uh, Jack Dempsey. I mean, Ali did, but Ali did it in different ways through his personality and, and, and his self-promotion. And they, you know, Ali was a, a brilliant boxer, but he wasn't always, you know, his fights were not always, uh, you know, he, he wasn't a knockout fighter. He wasn't known for a heavy punch. He drew people because of a whole constellation of things that made people want to watch. Tyson drew you there for one, with one key way, which was that this was he's just just a destroyer, and um, that has always brought people into the seats in boxing. That was how Dempsey did it because people had never seen an aggressive fighter quite like Dempsey before the 1920s, and in the 1980s nobody had seen someone fight like Tyson before. And uh, in fact, the Dempsey analogy was uh, one that Tyson was emulating himself. He uh, he, his early uh, haircut was was uh, almost a, a mimic of Dempsey's. They just shaven on the sides, 
uh, he, he liked to walk into the ring without robes, without the robe, just the trunks, just ready to fight. He saw that as another kind of Dempsey uh, adaptation. So, And, of course, the, the other real analogy to Dempsey is that he liked to end a fight as soon as possible. That was what, uh, what Jack Dempsey always wanted to do if he could. And uh, Tyson, uh, Tyson and Dempsey are the two guys who scored the most first-round knockouts among all these heavyweights. So the thing with Tyson, I remember, you know, I was in college at the time, it's just nobody wanted to miss the fights. Nobody wanted to miss him when he was on. And everybody knew, you know, make, you know don't be late, you know, because you might miss it. And that's a special kind of, of electricity to have. So he was um, just a giant draw. Uh, and he brought a lot of excitement, but of course he also brought uh, this incredible personal turbulence. And uh, he came from such a, uh, a difficult uh, background, which he's written about now in his uh, in his memoir, Undisputed Truth, which is a uh, you know it's a very long book. It probably could have been a little bit shorter, but the early parts of it are are really compelling. If uh, I would recommend people read it, those early chapters when he describes his childhood are are as harrowing as. Uh, Really and, and sad, uh, as, as you're likely to read of a kid who just, uh, you know, doesn't have any examples uh, other than pretty pretty negative ones to look after. So, um, you know, his career is, has that this kind of Dickensian uh, arc to it of coming from rags to riches and being found by this great mentor, Customato, a uh, great old boxing trainer who trains him in the Catskills, and it has this whole Hollywood sort of quality to it. You know, he sees he sees Tyson as a 13 year old, a 13 year old kid, and says that's going to be the next heavyweight champion of the world. Um, it almost seems like somebody made that up, and yet that that seems to have been the case. He he recognized the. Uh, this greatness in Tyson as, as a kid and uh, and Tyson becomes a boxing historian himself so he's watching all these old films and reading all the old books all about these guys from the past who he's hoping to emulate so his story has all this weight to it you know when he comes in and gets the title it almost seems as if he's destined to be here you know so but then it all just blows up it all blows up because of his um, you know his personal demons he's unable to to keep his life together and uh, he loses uh, some good people close to him who are going to look after him and then after that it's just it's just a roller coaster ride and uh, eventually it's a it's a real crash and burn scenario where he uh, hits the bottom in uh, 1992 and he's convicted of convicted of rape he had already lost his title by then uh, in a shocking upset in 1990 uh, to James Buster Douglas. Uh, but uh, his life just starts to spiral downward. He gets convicted of rape. He serves a three-year prison sentence. He comes back in the mid-90s and, uh, and is um, involved in several other huge gazillion-dollar fights with uh, Evander Holyfield. And again, infamy starts to follow him around. I mean, the infamous moment where he bites uh, Holyfield's ear. And he just becomes increasingly kind of like a tabloid tabloidish figure, almost cartoonish villainy, um, and just seems to be a kind of a, a person imploding before our eyes. Um, and then have, of all things, this um, emerge, he emerges from this, he emerges from the depths and, and has uh, apparently turned turned his life around and starts this whole second act or third act. I don't even know how to number them at this point, but, um, you know, he obviously, uh, as he wrote about in his book, he all kinds of serious therapy. He uh, um, was remarried, I guess, eight or nine years ago. He seems to be a doting father to 
these young children he has and uh, and people are rooting for him you know he's he's a, he's become a kind of sentimental favorite people people will root for Tyson and his uh, his um, Broadway show was very popular which he talks about his life and he's uh, he even makes people laugh now which is a it's, it's remarkable I mean uh, it's a remarkable arc uh, of a life and in many ways it kind of uh, to me exemplifies the whole uh, modern celebrity you know so ups and downs and crashes and um uh huge riches and, and bankruptcies and reversals of fortune and uh, um shame and redemption and shame and redemption and uh, it's it's uh his life has got it all in there but he is really the last uh, uh he's really the last american heavyweight champion who captures people in that way and he's there's a uh, vander holyfield is eventually his you know his conqueror uh, and Holyfield's an interesting guy himself, but he doesn't have that same kind of hold uh, on, you know, on American fans that that Tyson did. And then, um, you know, a few years later, uh, Lennox Lewis first becomes champion. He's from Great Britain, and then eventually, the title was taken over by these two Ukrainian brothers, the Klitschkos, Vladimir and Vitaly. And uh, Vladimir, in particular, held it for close to a decade or so, and. Uh, and now it's um, it's still the title is back in Great Britain now. So it's really Tyson and Holyfield that that's really where the American line uh, ends. And um, at this point, that's right around the turn of the century. That's going on two decades now. So it's been a long time uh, that uh, that the title has uh, has left the United States. And for more than a century, the thought that it wouldn't be in the United States would have been, you know, would have been unthinkable to people. Mm-hmm. Why, after so long, then, has boxing suddenly moved away from the United States? Um, is it something to do with the decline of boxing as a sport in the U.S., or maybe the rise of, of boxing in Latin America and Eastern Europe and the U.K., or something else? Yeah, I think those are some reasons, sure. I mean, boxing's been... Uh you know, it depends who you talk to. Boxing's been in, in decline for, you know, for a, a large part of its, uh, a large part of its history. Uh, I mean, it's, um, it's never really surpassed its kind of, uh, mid-century peak, I'd say, maybe the, the 40s, maybe the early 50s. Um, but from around the mid to late 50s on, it was really, uh, it's had a very slow, slow descent. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one reason that people don't, don't always think about is that up to about the mid century boxing didn't have a lot of competition the number one sport was baseball uh, baseball was always number one but boxing was basically number two uh, it was hugely popular everybody followed it um, the NFL was there was an NFL but it wasn't it, it wasn't a, a serious competitor uh, college football was more popular than pro football back then uh, the NBA same thing it was around but it was it was a small kind of thing. It wasn't, uh, didn't have the kind of popularity. And, uh, you know, starting in the 60s, the NFL really takes off in the 1960s. The NBA starts to take off. So there's a lot more competition for people's fan dollar, uh, sports dollar. And boxing is just terribly run. It just never had, um, never had a commissioner and never had somebody like Pete Rizal, who's such a brilliant commissioner for the NFL, you know. Um, it was really kind of organized anarchy uh, or disorganized anarchy and of course corruption I mean the, there was mob elements in boxing going way back um, 
uh, starting around the early 70s, these multiple organizations start coming in and naming their own champions. So uh, you have these divisions that have multiple champions. Nobody knows who the real champion is. And the, the sport just really um, is shooting itself in the foot left and right. You have bad decisions. You have corruption. You have deaths in the ring. A lot of stuff to deal with. Um, and uh, what held it together, just it's staggering through that period, was the heavyweight title. The people like Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Larry Holmes. Tyson, uh, and then at the lower weights, that great last period in the 80s with people like Sugar Ray Leonard and Thomas Hearns and Marvin Hagler. Um, but, you know, it was an uphill battle, and uh, um, the sport is uh, another big thing that happened around in the late 80s is it left free television. You know, when I was a kid, I got into the sport because it was available on television. I grew up in an age before cable, hard as that is to believe. And, uh, you know, it was there, but it, it, it left regular television and moved to cable entirely. Um, and pay-per-view and i think that closed itself off from its audience uh so it's just a lot of uh different factors but you mentioned you know global the globalization i think that's definitely uh been a factor too um you know you look at these guys that won the heavyweight title in the 21st century they're from ukraine uh ukraine you know they wouldn't have been in the running back in the other you know the earlier part of the uh, of the history because of the iron curtain and all that so there's a lot of factors but american fighters are still you know, Floyd Mayweather is an American. There's there's great American fighters at the lower weights. Uh, people have been trying to answer the question why Americans are not in the heavyweight division. And I have to confess, I've never really heard an answer to that that I find satisfying. I'm really not sure what the answer is. What I've heard more than one person say is um, is that uh, big guys have other options now. They can play basketball or they can play football. Um I don't know. I've never found that super convincing, but it it, it, it could be right. Um, I never, um, you know, football is going to face its own problems now because of uh, because of the, the head the head damage issue. So, you know, we could have a lot of different changes going on um, in the years to come in in terms of the sports that are that are accepted and not accepted. Um, you know, so I mean, as bad as boxing has governed itself, in some ways, I think. Some of this was inevitable. Um, another factor I didn't mention was uh, this has always been the sport that attracted the poorest, the poorest kids, for the obvious reasons. You don't you don't go and become a fighter unless unless you have to. And um, the standard of living in America from now going back to the early 20th century, you know, it's 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 uh, risen dramatically. And uh, I just think that uh, there's just been less. There's been less need in the cities of, of you know, for, for boxers that there were at, say, the turn of the 20th century compared with now. It's just um, uh, there are and there are other sporting options. You know, back in back in boxing's heyday, there were there was plenty of poverty to send kids to gyms and there were plenty of gyms. You know, there aren't as many boxing gyms as there used to be. So, right. um, And it faces challenges from other fight sports like MMA. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I see MMA as a symptom of boxing's decline, not um, not, not a cause. I, th I think MMA um, came about, um, best my memory serves, about the early 90s, really, when it first started to percolate up. And uh, I think it just moved into the vacuum that was being left by boxing. And boxing had left TV. So right there you have an opening. Uh, because it's not on regular TV, and MMA was very savvy. See, as like I mentioned, the commissioner before this guy Dana White, 
you know, he's, look at look at what he built. I mean, it's, it's it's pretty effective, and he marketed it very effectively. And he he uh, he gave fans the fights that they wanted. You know, boxing is also notorious for not giving fans the the fights they want with the you know these top guys who they want to see fight, and they can't they can't make a deal. And it's you know, it's very frustrating uh, for people who. Um, who follow it so uh, yeah MMA I think rose up because boxing was losing people um, whether the two can go head to head in some way and boxing can come out ahead again I think uh, you know remains to be seen boxing has had a couple of good years it's had a couple of fights recently as people know that uh, got people kind of excited and you know, when I'm reading around these days, I see boxing writers feeling more encouraged that that the sport is ha- is on a bit of a roll and might might be building some momentum. So, um, you know, we'll see. But it's um, it certainly did dig itself a hole uh, in many in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, thinking about the overall history of of boxing uh, in the United States, um, we've talked. About the big names, uh, what are some of the smaller names that sort of stand out to you? Some of the, what I like that you do is between the big names, you link them with these, some of these smaller, um, figures. Um, so yeah, do do you have any ones that particularly stand out to you? Sure. Um, you know, one of the, one of the joys of working on the book was just, really all these guys as you said i mean these these mini biographies um uh, i was hard pressed to find any of these guys who were dull uh or or unsympathetic in in some way or other um so you know the guy who jumps out to me is a, a fighter from the 20s named gene tunney who um was from new york city and he was the guy who went on to defeat jack dempsey which through most of the 1920s was thought to be uh thought to be impossible. Uh, but the remarkable thing about him was that he um, was not only a great boxer and a great champion, he saw box, he had this whole vision of his life that he wanted to uh, bring to fruition. And it involved um, making a million dollars and retiring from boxing before he got hurt so that he could, um, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, essentially so that he could read books and improve himself. And uh, he was a um, son of, you know, relatively poor parents. He had uh, become uh, uh, fascinated with literature as a young man, but he didn't really have the schooling. And he was busy trying to advance himself as a boxer. And uh, he uh, had this big, big vision for his life. And uh, at first it involved beating Dempsey, which he believed would bring him uh, about about a million dollars and allow him to retire comfortably. And uh, he did this. He defeated Dempsey not once but twice. He he got his million dollars. He married a Carnegie heiress uh, so put his money together with hers and he did go ahead and become a kind of student of the arts and become uh, friends with uh, people like Thornton Wilder and uh, George Bernard Shaw and uh, Yale once asked him to come and lecture to to their class about Shakespeare so he's he's a a very atypical uh, boxer and for 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 those reasons, uh, some boxing fans uh, didn't like him because they they thought he was uh, being a little bit uh, above his station. But uh, he's, it's a pretty remarkable 
story. Another guy is obviously uh, George Foreman. I mean, uh, closer to our present day. And that's another guy who kind of um, this whole arc of a life, you know, his first career is this young uh, uh, knockout fighter. It's just terrifying to get in the ring with. And um, he's never a bad guy, but he was, he was not the friendliest. He was an intense uh, young guy, surly. And he loses this um, very dramatic fight with Muhammad Ali in Africa, the fight known as the Rumble in the Jungle, where Ali famously um, leaned on the ropes and let Foreman swing away at him until Foreman was exhausted uh, in the heat, and Ali knocked him out. Um, and and uh, Foreman, a year or two after that, retired from boxing at a pretty young age and became a born-again Christian um, and stayed out of boxing for a decade. And people had long since stopped wondering whether he would ever come back. And then all of a sudden, just as they assumed that he would never come back. He did come back, uh, pushing 40 years old, uh, overweight, looking very different, bald, shaved head, and jolly and friendly and funny and making jokes about his weight and about his love of cheeseburgers and all the rest of that. And becoming, within a few years, this loved, hugely popular figure, completely different than the guy who'd been around in the 70s. Uh, but beneath all that joking, there was a very serious determination to win that title back, and, and by God, he goes ahead and does it at the age of 45, um, the oldest guy ever ever to do that. So, and he's you know he's gone on and become an entrepreneur. He, he puts his name to this incredible uh, product that becomes known as the Foreman Grill, uh, which is just this phenomenal, which ends up making him more money than he even made as a boxer. So he's had a, a pretty uh, remarkable life as well. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of guys in the book. I, I really, um, uh, I, I enjoyed delving into all the lives. I found, uh, you know, there's a story behind all of them. There's, um, there's a background behind all of them, you know, and, and, uh, one of the things I was writing about in the introduction is that, you know, we see boxers as these gladiators and, and all this, which they certainly are, but, you know, you peel back the layers and these are, these are people like the rest of us. They've got parents, they've got fears, they've got insecurities. They've got all the stuff that, that regular people do. The only difference is they've got to work out those fears and insecurities in front of tens of thousands of people. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a daunting thing to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so we've taken up a lot of your time, um, Paul, but thank you so much. Uh, so what are what's next for you? What are you working on next? Well, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, what my next uh, – uh, project should be. I'd like to work on something like this again. I, I love doing this. Um, you know, I don't know if uh, if I'm finished with uh, this topic or not. I kind of assumed I was when when I was working on the Boxing Kings. Uh, I thought that I'd put it all together and uh, wrap it up. Um, but you know, there's a lot of different stories in here that one could certainly take take in a different direction and explore uh, individually. So I've, I've thought about that. I'm not really haven't really come to any decisions yet about what I'll do next. Okay. Well, Paul, I'm sure whatever you decide, it'll be another page turner. So uh, watch out Thanks. for Paul Beston. Um, and I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It was really great. And um, uh, yeah, take care. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, James. Thanks for having us.